Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Homeowners and renters share a common desire. They want their place of residence to be of high quality and sound construction. For people who live in our region, that is especially true. We do get some pretty gnarly storms every once in a while. In the last 13 years, we've experienced a tornado and a flood, and mainline winds and downpours are frequent. So when you go to sleep at night, you want to be sure that the walls of your home don't come crumbling down. With our region's population growth also comes a demand for more housing. That means more and more homes have been built at an ever-increasing rate of speed. But does all of that action mean that newer homes are safe and well-built? And what does that mean for older homes in our neighborhoods? Are they up to current to the current standard of codes? Today, we're going to explore the quality of construction of homes in Nashville and Middle Tennessee in conversation with my guests. Let's meet them now. J.P. Harris is a historic restoration carpenter. Martin Schaffner is an architect and the owner of Architect Shore Firm. And Tim Rowland is a building inspector for Metro Codes. Thank you all for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. For Thank you. Us. Really appreciate it. Now, I want to kind of open up our discussion by learning a little bit about you all and your career and how you came to do the work that you all do. JP, you're a historic restoration carpenter. I, I can assume we know the kind of work that you do. <laughs> but, you know, give us some detail about being a restoration carpenter. What what type of projects are you working on? Yeah, thanks, Khalil. Um, <clears throat> well, I primarily focus uh, on historic residential, um, kind of steer away from commercial Um I've been working in the field about 23 years. Um, I had moved to the Northeast from the South where I grew up uh, when I was uh, in my late teens and kind of by default, 90% uh, of the buildings to work on in Northern New England are historic. So uh, you're not going to find a lot of work if you don't learn how to restore them properly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found a lot of, I kind of naturally grew into a passion of fixing old things in general, old trucks, old motorcycles, and old homes being the primary thing. Um, and a lot of the focus of what we do is um, kind of whole house health, um, assessing structural issues, foundation issues, um, trying to weatherize and modernize in any way we can without taking away from the historic nature of the home. Um, and then a lot of really finicky detail work, uh, reproducing millwork parts, um, aspects of trim or doors or windows that um, just simply aren't available anymore. And so we make a lot of those parts by by hand and um, and just generally try and buy another hundred years at all the houses we're working on. We have a hard cutoff of 1932 is the year we decided we don't like the way they're built after that. So, okay. <laughs> um, so we primarily work on homes from the late 1800s and, and uh, the first 20, 30 years of the the 20th century. Talk to me about this cutoff in 1932. Why don't you like the homes that were built <laughs> post that year? Well, um, <clears throat> uh, after World War One, um, you know, kind of between World War One and World War Two is when the sort of industrialization, the true sort of industrialization of building began. Um, there were already uh, semi-prefabricated home kits available. A lot of people have heard of the Sears and Roebuck catalog houses mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, there were various companies regionally all over America that were making these semi-prefabricated homes in the way that all of the stud material, the siding, the windows, the doors, the trim would all come on a railroad car or a series of trucks. And 
Um, of course, the carpenters would do all the final fit and finish and assembly. They weren't what you would consider a prefab home by today's standards. Um, but in that time between World War One and Two, there really was a uh, there was a push to um, cheapen the construction of houses as much as possible. Um, there were a lot of shortcuts taken in the the minute details of door construction, window construction, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just kind of decided that we preferred working on homes. Uh, you know, we we had to pick an arbitrary year okay. to say no more after this, and it was after about three times in a row of being on jobs from the late 30s that we were we were annoyed by certain construction details that we decided, okay, you know what, we're cutting them off there. They also, uh, they started omitting things like gable and eave overhangs that keep weather away from the building a lot. Um, again, sort of knocking down every little corner they could to cheapen the construction of the house for the homeowner. So, uh, so since you work in historic buildings, mm-hmm. I imagine you work closely with the codes department. I do, I do. Very reg- I'm on the phone with... Um, uh, one of the gals from the sort of regional uh, oversight committee from the, the Metro Historic Commission, uh, probably about four times a week. And okay. uh, we've developed a really uh, fun and very workable relationship. I, I couldn't do half of what I do, A, without their approval, and B, without their advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they pull a lot of historic photos and records for us so we can see um, aspects of the building from decades ago that have been removed you know, in different years or modified in some way um they're they're very good when we need to alter a detail to meet a modern code aspect or um a functionality issue that was not built into the original structure they work really well with us on tailoring designs that they can issue a variance for mm-hmm. um, so i might be one of the only contractors in nashville that says he loves getting on the phone with historic <laughs> a lot of contractors simply don't understand um, the methods of construction and the proportions of architecture, you know, architectural design from these different eras, and they get really frustrated when they continue to fail historic um, reviews on the work they do. And because me and my guys are really nitpicky and love the tiny details, we have a great working relationship. That, with them. Well, that's good, I'm mm-hmm. sure, for your clients. Now, now, Tim, working with codes brings us to you. You're at the Metro Codes Department. Tell me a little bit more about how you came to work for them. Well. Um, Yes, I'm with the uh, Building Inspection Division, and, and I actually had the privilege of, of coming from a restoration background uh, er, er, early as a uh, construction worker myself. Uh, when I first moved to Middle Tennessee, I got to hire on with a, an outfit named Leatherwood, which they tried to specialize in uh, log structures and timber frames and historic buildings. Um, so that was, that was a lot of fun, but... Um, you know, as um, as I aged, I was looking for uh, you know a career that I could uh, uh, um, have have benefits and things, mm-hmm. uh, and so um, I actually bought my the house I live in from a lady who was a um, a mechanical uh, inspector with Metro at the time, and she kind of helped plant that seed of. Um, of uh, applying for an inspector job. Well, tell me, how does your background in contracting and how does that help you with the work that you do today as an inspector? It's 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 a tremendous help, I believe. That is, you you can qualify for an inspector job with either a two year construction degree or five years of supervising construction in the field. Either either of those will qualify you for the job, but. There's no substitute, I don't believe, for actually having spent time on site, in the field, watching the pieces go together, 
And um, I think Metro is fortunate because um, we actually have separate electrical, plumbing, mechanical, which is the HVAC, and uh, then building divisions. And we have people that have come from those trades uh, in in every one of the divisions. So on a typical new house, there's going to be at least four inspectors uh, visiting that site at least two times during the process um, mm. of it of it being built uh, from each of those trades uh, and given their specific sign-offs. What's the communication flow like between all of those specialties in the codes department? Um, well, um, in particular, um, us in the building division, we want um, at the framing or the rough-in stage of the house, that is before the uh, interior uh, framing gets covered up, we want those trade permits, that is electrical, plumbing, and mechanical, to all have passed their rough-in inspection first before we come and do the framing um, so that all those systems are in place and uh, nobody comes in behind the framing inspection and, and butchers something that uh, um, uh, 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 that um, should have already been done. So at the point that we do a framing inspection or give a frame, framing approval in the building division, um, the the interior should be ready to, to be covered mm-hmm. and concealed. Now, do, do you inspect private homes and commercial buildings? Um, yes, we do. In fact, um, our building inspection d- division is divided into commercial and residential. So the residential guys are looking at um, single family and duplexes. And then anything that's multifamily, condos, apartments, uh, on up to hospitals, high-rises, the airport, hmm. those are all uh, under the commercial. So okay. we have about um, even number of people looking at each of those. I imagine you all are very busy these oh, days. Oh, goodness, yes. It's, uh, <laughs> it is an unprecedented time. There's The demand is, uh, is, is uh, really... Really high. Yeah, and things have changed over the years. Martin, you're an architect. You've worked in Nashville for the past 40 years. Did you always want to become an architect? No. (laughs) Uh, I did. uh, I studied anthropology when I was an undergraduate and worked for the museum that I was fortunate enough to be allied with. And two construction projects were going on at the time. And my uh, supervisor, my boss, the director of the museum, asked me to go look at the building and come back and make observations of what I'd seen, share with him what I saw. And 13 pages and three hours later, hmm. he turned the notepad back at me and to me and said, you're now the building um, uh, an owner's rep. Okay. And I ended up having architects and uh, codes folks and everybody trying to, in some way, um, answer to me, which was an eye-opening, eye-popping experience. I'm, I'm fundamentally curious, though. I'd done a lot of theater in college, and putting on a show and telling a story is really what buildings do, fundamentally, especially if you're going to have any fun with it. What does the old building want to say? What does this room need to do? What are the multiplicity of functions it needs to serve? And as an architect, you get to be, or I get to be, a generalist enough to try to respond to all those parameters. And mm. they can be code, and they can be site constraints and budgetary constraints, scheduling. Um, I love what I do, 
and um, I'm glad I found it. If the fellow hadn't asked me to go and inspect his, this construction project, I don't know that I'd be with you today. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy that you're here. And, you know, speaking, of, you know, in your work as an architect, you you take a client's vision, and then you put that on paper, and that's really like the first step in making it real. No. Okay. No. You 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 listen to what the client says they think they need, and they verbalize what they're missing, be it a um, a new home or an addition, or if it's a church, more worship space or whatever. And then you translate that. It's not fair. You're not a drafting service. Okay. You're not um, a sieve through which um, a notion passes. You have to take that and what you what you hear them saying they may be becoming mm. as a married couple. I mean, uh, I, I had to deal with a client once who said, well, this doesn't represent me. And I said, actually, it does. Look at this, this, and this in your life. And she goes, oh, my gosh, I'm thinking I'm the person I was 10 years ago. And I said, you're not that person. Okay. And it's it's being truthful. It's being honest with folks. And um, I don't specialize. At, in, I've worked with law firms and um, clinics and schools. And it's because I'm willing, I think, to listen and take folks where they're coming from and extrapolate and be honest enough with them that if it's not working, it's not working. Some people want a drafting service. That is not me. Mm. Now, you know, you've been working here in Nashville for 40 years. How have the type of jobs you've hired for changed over that course of time? The, the biggest difference is not so much the building type, but the the uh, supply constraints. I mean, it's just extraordinary how difficult it is to to get the brick maybe that you wanted that you used to could get, or the supply constraints for the the waiting time for a particular window or window type, or um, uh, it paint paint's been reconstituted, it's been reformulated. So what you mat what you want to match in a building that you did six years ago, you can't get that color anymore. So you got to go through the process of trying to match that wood the quality of wood is um, pretty vastly diminished you don't get straight and plumb like you used to um, I agree with um, JP that that uh, the dates are are sort of sad that we're getting less rather than more capable we're capable of identifying features but putting it all together is a really hard process. And just because you can draw doesn't mean you understand how to put it together. Mm. And just because you can work a schedule doesn't mean you know enough about how the building really needs to go together. Um, there's a very famous building out in California, the architects of which quit in 1914, the Gambles, the Gamble House in Pasadena. They quit in 1914 because you couldn't get good help anymore. Well, wow. it's it's astounding. Um, I, I do think we we as a society are reluctant to give it what it really takes, both in time and effort and money and understanding. I think that we uh, uh, don't teach our children to perceive three-dimensionally as well as they might. We might teach them how to play football, but do we teach them really past the third grade how to paint? how to draw, how to comprehend space. The most expensive thing you do in your life is buy a house. And really, how much time is devoted to understanding what you're really getting into? You know, I, I, I like that point because, you know, and I also see you nodding, JP, mm-hmm. in agreement with what, with what you know, um, Martin was sharing. I like that point. It is the most expensive thing that we'll do 
in our lifetimes. But there kind of seems to be this factory assembly line approach to purchasing homes now. I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about my materials. You know, Martin was saying that it's hard to get wood. And before the show started, the three of you were in this <clears throat> conversation about the wood you can use. And mm-hmm. you, you you were mentioning certain types of wood. And it was fascinating to me. You're like, we have, we're stuck with mahogany because it's the only thing that can withstand the weather that we experience here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. So tell me, like, what are the main differences between the materials that are used to build to restore like buildings today as opposed to how we used to do things in the past? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, we have uh, this sort of irre- irreversible um, dwindling of old growth forests. I mean, most, you know, every home, pretty much every single home built up until the early 1900s was, it was being, the, the materials used were old growth wood. You know, you see, um, people selling salvaged heart pine and things like that for four times the cost of new oak flooring because you physically can't get wood of that density and quality anymore. Um, and sort of due to that um, that shortage, which is something that cannot be there, there is no way to engineer a supply chain around that. When when there's no more old growth wood to use, you have to start finding alternative methods, and that's why I was mentioning like we for rot resistance and and UV stability and, and everything like that. And structurally, we've gone to using tropical hardwoods because they're the only thing that can fit within a budget and meet all of those criteria. Now, where the bulk of the building industry has gone is into man-made materials, composites, um, you know, in the 80s. And we'll go back even further in the 60s, people started getting really hot to trot about aluminum siding. Mm-hmm. And then after about 25, 30 years, they realized that that was trapping moisture and bugs and making rot pockets behind their siding. and we tear a lot of that off of old houses. And then in the 70s and 80s, they said, oh, vinyl's the thing. You never have to paint it. And you can pressure wash it. And then you find out that after four years in the southern uh, exposure you know, phase of a house, that it starts crumbling like little pieces of potato chips. And, and so it's, the, the desire for low-maintenance composites has just grown and grown and grown over the last four or five decades. Um, the, the problem is, is that a new miracle material is, is, is pushed heavily All every the decade there's a new one yeah um but in in the last 20 years i think there have been um systems designed and engineered products that do finally because of modern science and lab testing abilities and and that sort of thing that that will truly hold up to the test of time but they're all very contingent upon very specific installation systems. They still require maintenance, but they're sold to the homeowners as maintenance-free. You know, we get a lot of calls. People say, well, we want to use, to drop a name brand that everyone knows from HGTV. They say, well, we want Hardy Hardy Board. That's what, that's, you never have to paint it, right? It lasts forever. Like, hail can hit it. It's not, not how it works. And, uh, and, you know, there's tiny little details in the installation that most contractors overlook or don't want to take the time to deal with. Um, they not only void the warranty, but then they cause them to fail. So there's, there you know, there's pros and cons. Um, but definitely in my specific world, um, you know, finding um, actual solid wood that is of a of a high enough grade and rot resistance and everything, you know, straightness and uh, stability, it gets harder and harder. Yeah. And, now, Tim, uh, we're going to go to break, but I do want to ask you this: When you're inspecting a building that's you know 50 years old, what are some of the main items that you're looking at? Well, um, we're looking at um, a lot of the same type of things that we, we would be looking for in um, new construction. That is, um, 
nominal lumber, natural wood uh, from trees is um, has much of the same standards as as it always did. Um, fortunately, um, uh, on on the exteriors now nowadays, as as JP was saying, um, there there are there are newer materials that are that are getting used that. Um, are more rot resistant, as you say, if they're um, installed properly and per the manufacturer's installation instructions. But um, we we do see a lot more of um, engineered type systems and um, uh, lumber that is uh, glued together. Lots of uh, pieces. Sometimes uh, uh, the strand boards are a lot of the sheathing that's used. Um, so we're looking for nailing patterns. We're looking for the proper support and the proper uh, mechanical fasteners that go mm-hmm. with those systems. Okay, you said glued together. I hope I, I wouldn't want to buy a house that's put put together with Gorilla Glue. That's all <laughs> I'm saying. Okay, uh-huh. so let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the materials and workmanship that go into new construction. Is what goes into the building as important as who is doing the building? As always, you can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalona, and this is Nashville. We are discussing the quality of new builds that are popping up all over the region. Housing is in high demand. People are looking to buy or rent homes at a rapid rate. Naturally, that means more new builds are being created. But is the quality of these new structures up to an established standard? With climate change happening, we're bound to get more storms. Will these new homes and buildings be able to withstand the severe weather our region is subjected to? I'm happy to have my guests on the show to help answer those questions and give us some guidance on how we should move forward. My guests are Carpenter, J.P. Harris, Architect Martin Schaffner, and Metro Codes Inspector Tim Rowland. Thank you again so much for being here. Now, you know, we're looking around and we see a lot of different styles of houses popping up around town. From notorious tall and skinnies to the more traditional, like, ranch-style homes. You know, Tim, you're out there inspecting these new builds. What trends are you seeing out there? Well, um, because of the demand here in town now, I mean, you're, you see every style and uh, you see every level of skill um, of the crews putting them together. So, in the best case... Um, what we're looking for is is kind of a a, a minimum safety uh, standard. It's it's not necessarily a, a custom home. It's often it's a starter home, um, but we're we're looking to to see that um, it's built solid um, and that um, it has the safety features that are required by the code. You mentioned a different range of skill of the crews putting it mm-hmm. together. Have you seen a decline in workmanship generally? Well, um, I'm afraid uh, you, you would have to say so, yes, um, because so many people, when there is such high demand, so many people are trying to get in the game. They see the dollar signs and... Um, if they can get their house built and get their UNO letter, uh, you know, they stand to make a, a good profit. And naturally, 
a lot of people are going just as fast and, and as cheap as possible to meet the minimum code to, um, to, to make their profit. So that's kind of why we exist, I guess, mm-hmm. so that uh, to protect the public, especially first-time home buyers, um, people that may not be experienced homeowners, uh, to, to protect them from, from hustlers. Now, now, Martin, you were describing your approach to the work, and it sounds like you take a lot of care when just even the first sit-down with the client all the way through the project's completion. So we're seeing all these homes. Not many of new ones are being built by architects particularly people who take the care that you do. What concerns do you have about a lot of these new places that are being built around town? I guess I'd pull back a little bit and think about what neighborhood are these new houses going in. And the lack of tree canopy, the lack of sidewalks, the lack of accessibility to uh, grocery, I I think we're so desperate to land somewhere that we're not thinking as long-term as we might otherwise, and that worries me. that's first off. Another is that about 90% of the houses that are built aren't designed by architects, and I think they suffer as a consequence. The neighborhoods that you do preserve, the neighborhoods that uh, JP has worked on, those were designed by architects. Those those weren't throw away uh, 30 years from now and start all over again kind of neighborhoods. So I, I think there's real value in the services of an architect, and that's not meant to be self-serving. It's to help watch what's going on, just like in codes, the, the codes department. There is no assumption of liability um, by Metro when they inspect the property. They do their job, but they have no um, um, financial exposure in having missed something, and that's mm. as it should be. They're not out there guarding you. The contractor, his liability's gone after, in some cases, one year. Wow. The architect, the architects could go on as long as five, six, seven years, depending upon certain certain elements. So. Um, we do care. We want that car to last. We're not interested in your just getting out on the highway and having it fall apart. Yeah. Um, you you well, talk about materials. The glues have been re-recipied, the uh, asphalts, the shingles. There, there, there are a lot of real problems, but the biggest problem I've seen is water. Mm. And, and what's sight unseen sometimes is the most important thing, and that is how do you drain the water away from your house? And 2010 should have taught Nashville that what's below grade matters because a lot of basements were filled with water. A lot of uh, uh, drainage was not handled properly, not just in the creeks or the rivers, but in the neighborhoods. And that's just a part and parcel of the generalist that an architect is to try to address not just one thing, not just the look, but all of it. If I can advise people to do one thing, and that is have a good roof overhang, the rains are going to keep coming, people. Maybe we'll be have a drought. Maybe we'll have rain. But I've got a house that my wife and I bought. The windows work as well as they did when the house was built 70 years ago. Mm. And that's because we've got a 30-inch overhang. Now, that's a one-story house, but, boy, it makes a big difference when – it comes time to replace your windows, and it's a twenty or thirty thousand dollar fee. You'd rather, I'd rather avoid that. Yeah, I think a lot of people would like to avoid that. Now, Tim, I understand you have a story about the twenty ten flood. Well, um, yes, uh, one one historical building uh, in particular that I did have a chance to um, do some rehab inspections on over the course of several years, different renovations was the Almahandro um, water treatment plant. 
um, or I shouldn't say treatment, but the uh, uh, where they bring in water from the wi- river to you know supply homes, businesses, the all the fire suppression systems and fire hydrants. But um, that that is the one um, water plant uh, in Nashville that remained functioning during the flood. Or I don't know that it was the only one, but I I do know of others that completely flooded out and and were unable to operate. And and then after the flood, those had to be retrofitted and uh, entire grade raised around them and equipment raised and backup generators put in. But but the old uh, Omahundra water plant from, I, I guess, the 1800s probably, um, it really, in my mind, kind of saved Nashville during, mm. during that uh, emergency. Okay, so this, the Omahundra? Uh, Omahundra, yeah. The, the um, Omahundra water plant saved Nashville, built probably in the 1800s, so it definitely meets the 1932 cutoff line exactly, that you have, yeah. JP. You know, but we're talking about sustainability of all this new housing, given the climate, given just in the materials as well. I know you work primarily with older homes. You're restoring mm-hmm. older homes. But what have you heard? What are you seeing as far as new builds and the quality that goes into them? Uh, nightmares left and right. I live in the Shelby Hills neighborhood. So down the last neighborhood on the south end of the east side that abuts um the tip of Shelby Park. I live near the Naval Hill, which is that where the Frisbee golf course and all that stuff is, mm-hmm. the old Navy base. And um, my neighborhood lacked enough ratio of, his, of, of quantifiable historic buildings to ever receive any sort of restrictive overlay. Like, so you go to the other side of Shelby Avenue, go north of Shelby, you're in Lachlan Springs or Easton Neighbors over there. There's enough historic character that people rushed to put restrictive overlays and preserve those neighborhoods and create really stringent standards for building. And I've watched in my neighborhood, which is primarily built uh, my particular block and the whole rest of it stretching uh, west towards downtown and the Davidson Industrial Bottoms, built between 1950 and 52, very much cookie cutter kit homes. They were built by one developer as fast as they could. They're basically GI Bill homes. And a lot of these houses lack, A, the size, B, the quality of workmanship, um, or C, the basic needs for a modern uh, you know, homeowner. I mean, the all of these houses were originally about 650 square feet. Most anyone is not willing to pay what a house costs in Nashville these days for 650 square feet. And so my neighborhood has been sort of ground zero for developers and investment firms. And I've watched these homes go up all around me with zero restriction. There's no proportionate overlay to keep the heights at a certain relative distance to original homes. Um, and I've had, I can see three new builds from my front, you know, if I stood on the peak of my roof, a little one story house, uh, I actually converted mine to be a historic reproduction. So it looks like it was built in the twenties, but okay. it's actually from 1952. And it was about an inch away from not being worth saving because of, again, the shortcuts in construction, but mm. I got crafty and fixed it myself. Um, but I had a neighbor behind me, um, they had a garage built on a hillside. Uh, it had engineers' letters that passed the footers for the foundation. The foundation started crumbling and collapsing into the earth two years after they bought the house, and they had to file a lawsuit to get the com- the garage completely demolished and rebuilt. Um, neighbor across the alley, uh, three story home with a third floor cantilevered balcony. Uh, the framing was improperly flashed and cantilevered out from the interior of the building to create this balcony and water was seeping in and dripping down through the second floor walls, ruined uh, about $2,000 wow. worth of drywall, 
mildew issues we had to re remediate. I don't again don't work on new buildings, but they're great neighbors. And I said, look, I'll squeeze you in between my real jobs. And then every morning on my front porch where I drink coffee, I'm watching it a three story, what's now primarily an Airbnb, kind of ultra modern house built, I think, specifically with being an Airbnb in mind. Um, that house is five years old and there's a, a little rectangular awning over the front stoop which is sagging up about six inches off the building on one leading edge. And that building was built five years ago. Mm. Um, the part of the housing boom and the market. And I'm questioning like how much the market impacts this. Martin, I know that you're not a real estate agent, but you, again, have been an architect in the city for 40 years. You've seen the housing market change over time. Let me ask you, what are your thoughts on this housing market that we're in and how it affects the quality of new construction? The housing market is always affected construction. The cost to build new is what pulls up the cost of the older homes. The older homes flow with the price of new construction. Hopefully, new construction prices will come down. I'd like to see that happen. But the reality is people aren't smarter than the market. To sit there and buy thinking you're going to make a killing may or may not happen, and it's way beyond your control. If you're going to buy, if you're a single family trying to buy a home, my advice would be buy the best house on the uh, the, be the 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 worst house on the best street that has um, no structural, real structural issues, and over time attend to it. But it it needs to be proportionate. And what I mean by that is not just an appearance, but the dining room and the living room and the bedrooms and the bathrooms all need to sort of feel kind of right. You don't want to go back and feel like you're in a dormitory when you actually look at it. The staging of houses um, are a little bit like, uh, you may know that term, when people try to make it look great on the Sunday open house day. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit like looking at Vogue magazine and saying, well, I want to look like that gal. Where do you put your clothes and where do you put your vacuum cleaner and where do you put your – all the stuff of life, all of that is vacuumed out of the Sunday showcase. So don't be misled. Be honest with yourself. Be willing to plan both your family if or your institution, master plan, your site. How are you going to grow? Um, be willing to look out into the future and be be really honest about what could happen, what might happen. And I go back to this rain stuff, the the neighborhood, JP, you're talking about all those interventions on sites are creating water flow onto the neighbor, and they're undermining, eroding, corroding, destroying what somebody else has done. At least at Vanderbilt football games, you can't wear, you can't have an umbrella that one blocks somebody else's view and pours rain on the guy you're sitting next to. And yet, we somehow seem to be doing that. And I blame contractors about being not honest about the real impact that what they're doing is doing to our community. I do want to talk about that a little bit more, but first, let's take one final break. When we come back, we're going to ask what Nashville's future looks like structure-wise. Will a, a new design begin to arise that is pleasing to the eye, easy on the checkbook, and built to last? Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kelowna, and this is Nashville. 
Today, we've learning, we have been learning more about new construction that is happening in the city and region. We've discussed the rapid rate of population growth and how that's impacted the quality of new homes and buildings. We also talked about the materials that are being used and are they able to withstand severe weather? Now let's gaze through the crystal ball for housing to explore what the future could look like for new housing and buildings in the region. My guests are Carpenter J.P. Harris, architect Martin Schaffner, and Metro Codes Inspector Tim Rowland. Thank you again, gentlemen, for being here. I want to jump right into the future. Martin, you were sharing some words with us over the break, and you know, you're an architect. You understand the current movement and how it relates to practices from the past. I'm curious what you think or housing would be like as we move into the future, or what you would like to see the construction of new housing like in the future. I think the younger generation, those who are forming households now, have priorities that are different from those of us who are in their 50s, 60s, or 70s. There's going to be a big turnover in the next 15 or 20 years with the sale of homes. And they live differently. They don't need the big dining room, or they don't want the big dining room. They don't want a library. I mean, the average American (laughs) hadn't even read a book in five years. They've read their screens, but they hadn't read books. That there, there's going to be a different kind of feel. I think they're more communal, perhaps, than we are. I think they're more than willing to live closer together. I, as being from Tennessee myself, I recognize the settlement patterns in the north are different than they are in the south. Uh, we still need to learn to, to live neighborly. Uh, we're not that used to having a common green space. We want our private experiences, our private clubs, our private whatever. I think the younger generation is not as afraid of strangers or of people down the down the street. I think they're going to, hopefully, we'll have a better world if we live long enough or they live long enough, that there'll be um, smaller construction, less construction, and uh, better public space, better sidewalks, better parks, uh, better shared living and a stronger community as a result. And, you know, there's a lot of trends. I know one trend that is really popular, it's starting to grow here and it's definitely popular in other parts of the country, people using shipping containers to build new homes. It's got, it's sustainable, but Tim, is that a safe way to build a new home? Well, it can be if you, if you get a structural engineer or an architect to come up with a design for you, because that is something that the, um, the regular code doesn't cover yet. Mm. Um, so if you're going to do that, you, you do have to, we would require, our department would require that you have an engineer design and then have that licensed engineer um, give us a report saying that it's a, at least as good as uh, code structurally. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's a good idea, but make sure you get experts to kind of help you move oh, forward. Yes, yes, you would need that. JP, tell me, what what's your vision of the future of housing here? Well, I would hope, um, <clears throat> you know, I've talked to a lot of the neighbors I have in, uh, right around me on my block, and almost every one of them said that the reason they bought the houses they did was not because they wanted as much square footage as was there, um, or even necessarily all the features built in. Again, I to agree with Martin, I think there's a disconnect between what, and these are all uh, married couples, some with kids, some without, you know, anywhere from the age of 35 to 45. Um, they said they bought them because there was such a lack of supply, and the only thing they could find in Nashville to buy were these great big 3,000 square foot new build houses, and they didn't want that. 
But again, when uh, when as Martin mentioned, the the price of the historic homes, or you know, even ones that are sort of menially historic, flows with the new build market. You know, and someone looks at a house eleven hundred square feet like mine, that's really nice and redone, but for fifty or hundred thousand dollars more, they can buy something in air quotes brand new with yeah. a air quote warranty that is usually only about one year long. Um, and people become uh, very daunted by the idea of doing restoration and renovation work. They want a turnkey home. They need to move. They have a kid. They need to move straight into a bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. But I agree with Martin that I think um, as a as a preservationist uh, in in mentality and working mode myself, um, you know, I would love to see homes that were built more to fit a neighborhood's historic character. But at the same time. Um, I think that a new approach to multifamily homes needs to be taken that could also meet the needs of a neighborhood in terms of flowing well. Modern architecture shouldn't be forbidden from these areas, but it needs to be incorporated seamlessly. And I do think that there is, hence the reason if you go up Gallatin Road or Dickerson Pike, or there's a lot of these areas that used to be kind of run-down industrial retail strips uh, on the east side where I primarily work, you never would have pictured a decade ago schmaltzy, fancy, urban mm-hmm. loft living apartments going up, but they, the, everyone is so desperate um, for a place to build and a place to live. Um, if the quality of construction actually met what I consider to be good standards, um, I, in theory, I'm all for more urban density with apartment buildings. And again, um, I have one neighbor who is actually one of the investment, he's, he's the head of an investment group behind one of the larger developers in East Nashville. And so I get a lot of sort of inside baseball from him about where things are heading. And he told me a couple of years ago that these great big, every feature, it's got a hot tub, it's got a big got a old gym. dining room, it's got a gym room, it's got a balcony mm-hmm. on the third floor, blah, 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 rooftop deck. Those features are becoming less and less important to a lot of people in more like the third, you know, late 20s to early 40s demographic that are moving here. Um, I think, like Martin said, that more people want a better urban density. They don't need quite as much. Um, and I would hope that the single family um, redevelopment of a lot of parts of town is a bit more sensible. Um, and that hopefully, I know that you know zoning and metro codes has tried to keep up with how to plan these neighborhoods, the planning commission. And um, the rate of building is going so fast that sometimes by the time a plan can be agreed upon at the metro county level, it's too late to enforce it in a neighborhood. Um, so hopefully, you know, it's a combination of a home buyers being smarter and more thoughtful about what they're purchasing. Um, and you, you raise an important question. It's like we have to ask, you know, who the new construction, who these houses are being built for. Obviously, you know, developers, they want the highest return on investment mm-hmm. and many lifelong, but a lot of lifelong Nashvilleans are being priced out at the city. It's something we talk exactly. about constantly on the show. So how do we balance creating enough homes for everyone with being thoughtful and making them affordable while also ensuring that working class Nashvilleans can afford to live here? I know this is not an expertise of anybody, but you're Nashvilleans and mm-hmm. you've been working here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But Tim, let's start with you. Um, well, you know, it, it's funny. uh the the things that are being built nowadays um, are, are people, um, developers will find a lot and then they will have a house designed to be exactly as big and as tall as, as they can put on the lot. And that, that is a disturbing trend and it's, it's, it's very tough on, on the neighbors on either side when that begins to take place. But perhaps the, perhaps the answer is 
um, more um, uh, of the uh, denser type of uh, communities where um, you, they can be apartment buildings. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I think the younger uh, generation is looking for a more walkable environment, uh, as as you had mentioned, Martin. And um, so perhaps um, perhaps the, that would be a trend going forward. Uh, but it is going to mean more density. Martin, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to back up a second. The engineered homes that you can find from the major home builders that descend upon Metro are Davidson County and outlying areas. Their houses are engineered. Watch what that word means, because if you ask, as a homeowner of, or purchaser of that property, you'd like a set of those drawings, they will not sell them to you. They have so designed those homes so that they're the least amount of wood to meet whatever code is in existence at the time. And if you wanted at some point to puncture a hole in that wall, you might be damaging your house. So I'm an advocate for conventional construction so that you can access it. We talk about sustainability. I want to be able to get to that broken pipe. I want to get to that HVAC duct. I want to find this dead squirrel in my attic. And if you can't get to all those things, how in the world are you supposed to be able to sustain your existence or uh, habitation in that house? So that's, that's one issue. I think, too, that enjoying the process, if you're house hunting, be willing to go look and not buy uh, mm. Educate yourself. You know probably more about uh, the, the, who's the quarterback for the Baltimore uh, uh, Ravens than you do about the house that you own. What's wrong with that? You need to know more about the stuff in your life, the the thousand things that can go wrong with your house. Learn, teach yourself, and share that knowledge. There are plenty of people that will be glad to share what they've learned. Um, and it's sort of joyful, and I enjoy what I get to do. I think these other two fellas do too. Yeah, I definitely feel. But like. it is frustrating that it's so expensive, because we really haven't ingrained in kids from the time they're in kindergarten. It's okay to want to work with your hands. It's okay to be a carpenter. It's okay to be a landscaper, working with the soil and getting things to grow. I mean, look at Nashville right now. Uh, so many houses are getting built that are white or black, right? Y'all see. The dark ones look too dark. We're, we've got uh, uh, climate change. What's that black paint supposed to do or that graphite? Uh, it's going to heat your house, people. And the white, the white, when the rain falls, your foundation is covered with brown mm. so that we put in uh, foundation planting. I mean, we're chasing our tails. We need to use our eyeballs and our experience and learn from our mistakes. JP? Uh, well, um yeah, I, I feel there's so many topics to address with this one directly. But um, uh, again, you know, talking about the urban density and what I, th I think that, um, you know, homeowners need to, again, adjust their uh, expectations and parameters of what all they need. And also, um, I, th I think that um, there has to be sort of a more collective conscious choice um, to live in more condensed environments. I think more people want that, and developers are trying to meet that demand, um, but with a profit margin at the bottom line instead of thinking about the long-term sustainability of it. You know, um, They build 
uh, you know, the what they call them, a three over one, where you've got three stories of residential over the first floor retail. Mm-hmm. It's a great model, um, but then they do it in an area that's uh, completely unwalkable, or they don't think about, okay, what if we allotted a quarter of this acreage we just bought to become community green space? It could be open to anybody. Um, yeah, I've spent a lot of time overseas in Western Europe, and you know, you go into these really dense old cities in Netherlands, and they've got these little shotgun three-story houses. Everyone has a beautiful little garden out back. Um, there's a there's a little market and a bakery on every corner of every block, um, and I see that you know we've we've got transit issues here. Um, people want to live in the city, but it's hard to get out of different neighborhoods, but, but almost any time of the day now, and um, I think that um, creating more amenities deeper in these neighborhoods that used to be solely bedroom communities, you know, um, and you know that's those are those are zoning changes at the city level where they need to start allowing things like you know a new little market or retail mixed residential district to be stuck into a corner of a neighborhood. My neighborhood is one of the few deep in East Nashville that's got its own little cute corner market. Roy Meat Service been there since the '30s. And I can walk five minutes from my house and go get a six pack of beer and a tomato or a steak or some mayonnaise or whatever I need. Um, and I think that <clears throat> a lot of the planning on the development end and the expectations on the, the 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 buyers end of these things is they they don't no one is thinking that far ahead to what could what could be the proper redevelopment of a neighborhood that makes it sustainable. Yeah, and it's yeah. something that you mentioned, uh, having these corner markets, I feel like that's something that could help solve our crisis of food deserts exactly. in certain parts of town. I really, really appreciate having this conversation with you. It was practical and philosophical about new builds here in Nashville. I want to thank my guests, J.P. Harris, he's a historic restoration carpenter, Martin Schaffner is an architect and the owner of Architect Sure Firm, and Tim Rowland, who's a building inspector for Metro Codes. Again, gentlemen, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Magnolia McKay. It was directed by Elizabeth Burton. Laura Boach is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet or X us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey on. Online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other. <laughs>